The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Beyond the Crucible. Washington put the mission and the cause, the independence of the American colonies, above his own ego and interest. It was all about the mission. His humility and devotion to his country was more important than his agenda. He was willing to listen to people, including his generals, who had more military experience and expertise than he did. I mean, it's really very rare. And I love when you have a situation where somebody's character overcomes maybe their natural character flaws, if you will. And he was an impatient person. He knew that, but he had the self-control, the self-discipline to be willing to listen and overcome his natural impatience. Character, discipline, overcoming a natural weakness like impatience. These are critical characteristics for leaders and for bouncing back from a crucible. And we explore this week how George Washington modeled them. It's our focus in this fifth episode of our series within the show, Stories from the Book, Crucible Leadership. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. Warwick and I discuss his appreciation of and respect for Washington as a man of inviolable character who walked away from power after winning the American Revolution, even when many clamored for him to keep it as long as he wanted it and America needed it. We also discuss his rare gift for listening, not just hearing, but heeding his advisors at a key point in the war when he wanted his army to attack the British, but those who counseled him urged restraint. The advisors proved right, and Washington proved his greatness. It's a greatness we all can lean into by modeling America's founding father, Warwick says, even though our vision will almost certainly be smaller than winning a nation its independence. We are in the fifth episode of our series within the show, Five of 10. So we're halfway through. I don't even know if you knew that work. We're halfway through uh, our 10-part series within a show, which we're calling Stories from the Book Beyond the Crucible. And this week, we are going to be talking about George Washington on character and listening. Just to level set us all a little bit as we get started, uh, Warwick's book, which is a Wall Street Journal bestseller, was released in 2022. And it's an important book because it's the book that birthed this podcast. It's the book that birthed Beyond the Crucible. If it wasn't for that book, none of this would be here. So just imagine a blank slate. That book made all of this 
possible. Um, and each month, what we're doing in this series in the show is we're we're taking one of the one of the historical figures that Warwick discusses in the book. Some of them are family members. Some of them are just are just leaders he admires. And we're we're unpacking a little bit just one or two details of what makes their experience so valuable to us as we look to navigate our way beyond our crucibles. Um, and this month, we are going to look at George Washington. Now, you may not know this, folks, or maybe you do if you've heard enough episodes, you've watched enough episodes. George Washington is, I think it's fair to say, one of Warwick's top five favorite historical leaders. So, um, uh, and we're going to talk about the two things that we're going to talk about in particular. There's a lot we could talk about, but the two things that we're going to mention in particular is George Washington's character and his, his listening ability. And those things you'll see by the time we're done are connected. So, uh, Warwick, um, as we get going here, it's important to note, you talk about a lot of great leaders in your book, but why have you been drawn to telling stories about great leaders? Um, in particular, Washington, who we're going to be talking about today. What is it about leadership in general, great leaders in general, but George Washington specifically that gets you so excited? You know, Gary, I have always been drawn to great leaders in history. You know, my dad loved history and we subscribed to the, you know, the great people in history theory that, uh, you know, leaders in history can make an enormous difference. And so what I've always been drawn to is looking at leaders who faced extraordinary times. One could debate whether they were extraordinary uh, in terms of natural ability, but they faced incredible circumstances, crucibles, if you will, and they rose to the to the occasion. They didn't mm -hmm. kind of shrink back. Uh, it would seem overwhelming, but they tackled these crucibles often against great odds. And so, in one sense, you could say that you know the greatness of these leaders was birthed in the cauldron of their crucibles. So you know, you look at leaders um, like uh, Abraham Lincoln in the U.S. Civil War. Winston Churchill in World War II, um, or George Washington in the American Revolution. That's four of your top five or three of your top five that you just <laughs> mentioned right there, I think. <laughs> exactly right. Well said. And so in each case, you know, you look at, um, you know, Churchill in World War II and the early years of the war, it was really Britain against the might of uh, Nazi Germany. And it looked pretty dire, pretty hopeless. But yet, you know, Churchill didn't shrink back. You know, Lincoln and the U.S. Civil War, uh, things were, you know, often not looking good. And here we have George Washington. He was up against the might of the British Empire, which at the time from, I don't know, historians could debate maybe, you know, 100 or 200 years before the American Revolution and throughout a good part of the 1800s, historians would typically say the British Empire was the dominant force in the world. It changed, you know, somewhere in the 1800s as America industrial might rose. But basically, Washington was taking on, you know, the greatest empire in the world at the time, uh, typically led by superior military commanders. This was right. no easy game, so to speak, not to trivialize it. This was no easy task. This He was going up against the best of the best. So, um, let's talk about who was George Washington. Uh, 
Um, he was uh, born in 1732, the son of a uh, you know prominent family, Virginia Plata. When he was 11, uh, Washington's dad died, which was obviously a crucible uh, in, a, in itself. And that sort of changed the trajectory of his life. Washington's uh, elder half-brothers were educated in, in England. But the death of his dad, I, you know, I'm assuming for financial reasons, uh, made that impossible. So by age 15, uh, unlike his elder brothers, Washington's formal education was over. You know, at the, you know, when you come from a wealthy family, you could have great education, maybe even a university education, but not for Washington. So he didn't let those setbacks limit him. Uh, at age 21, he obtained a commission in the, in the Virginia militia. And after serving in the French and Indian War, um, which is sort of a conflict between French and, and the British, uh, Washington was given command of Virginia's entire military force in 1755. And then fast forward 20 years in June 1775 with the outbreak of war against Britain, at the Continental Congress of the American colonies appointed Washington to take command of the Continental Army. So it was quite a rise to power, if you will, to authority against you know, some difficult circumstances growing up. So before we kind of get into why, you know, I think historians often view Washington as just one of the great leaders in history, there's an interesting side note uh, yes. that I want to kind of enter into. Yeah, for and, sure. And uh, so there's an interesting Fairfax family connection to Washington. So it turns out that there was a Lord Thomas Fairfax uh, who moved to Virginia while Washington was a teenager. Now, you know, that particular branch of the Fairfaxes came from Yorkshire, mine came from Warwickshire. So is there a connection? I don't know. You know, probably we would have to go back a lot of hundreds of years. But anyway, the Fairfax family regardless. So at the time, Lord Fairfax owned much of what is now Northern Virginia. And uh, when Washington was 16, Lord Fairfax gave, me, gave him his first job surveying his lands. So this young Washington uh, fellow uh, did a very good job surveying his land. And so Lord Fairfax, basically, as I've been told, was impressed, and he bought him a commission in the army. Back then, you actually had to pay to <laughs> join mm -hmm. the army, believe it or not. And so it was a Fairfax that gave him his first job and started in the army. Now, here's where it gets ironic. Being a lord, it's not surprising that Lord Fairfax, uh, his allegiance was on the other side uh, to the to the British and to the to the crown. So you wonder what his buddies must have said. I mean, were you right. the guy that bought this young Washington kid a commission in the army? He's like, uh, uh, maybe. Uh, oops. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Sorry right. about that, guys. <laughs> and and you're a lot more uh, humble about that than I would be. I would be telling people all the time that my family gave George Washington his start. <laughs> that would be my take on things, but you're much more humble in that regard. Yeah, well, fortunately, uh, you know, my dad was a big Anglophile, so maybe that wouldn't have worked growing up. But actually, these days, I'm a dual citizen, Australian and American, so it's okay right. for me to take pride. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So there Good. you go. Uh, but uh, so back to, to Washington. So as it said, by 1775, he was the commander of you know, the, the uh, Continental Army of the American colonies. So obviously, as all Americans know, uh, George Washington was the founder of, of, of our country. 
But what's interesting is that his greatness was not being a military strategist or being a brilliant tactical general, which he was not. Certainly no, no historian would say he was a brilliant tactical general, so to speak, despite the, his ultimate success. But really his greatness wasn't so much in being a military commander, it was in his character. And one of the um, interesting things to note is, you know, it's often good to look at who are the people that are praising us? You know, mm-hmm. who are the, you know, where, where are our, uh, you know, credits coming from? Well, when you have it coming from some of the greatest leaders of Washington's day or soon after, uh, it's worthy of, of note. So you've got King George III of England, the leader of the opposition, if you will, and Napoleon Bonaparte of France, who both said great things about Washington. George III said of Washington um, after Britain was defeated in the American Revolution that Washington was the greatest man in the world. This is the King of England saying that Washington's the greatest man in the world. Then you've got Napoleon, after being imprisoned in the island of, uh, of Elba, said, they wanted me to be another Washington, as if I'm not that good. Now, you know, Napoleon was not a humble guy, but maybe right. in a moment of humility and, you know, he's imprisoned and so he's not probably feeling too good about life. There was a moment of revealing self-reflection. So, um, you know, it's sort of interesting that many leaders come to power professing great principles and they get corrupted by power and money and position. That was not George Washington. And really one of the um, one of the reasons that uh, King George III and Napoleon said what they said was over one particular moment, if you will. And that was on December 23rd, 1783. The war had been won. Uh, a peace treaty had just been signed to end the war. And Washington said farewell to the soldiers of the Continental Army and the, Co- the Confederation Congress uh, in Annapolis. Funnily enough, that was the temporary capital back then. Interestingly enough, I actually live in Annapolis, Maryland. So go figure. Uh, Look at all these connections live. you have to George Washington. <laughs> exactly. I have- I mean, where I live, we have like a Washington Avenue and we have a school (laughs) named after him. That's all I've got going on. (laughs) So, and here he is that at the height of power, he is resigning his commission in the army and he's going, his plan was to live in his estate in Mount Vernon in Northern Virginia and just retire. And uh, what's interesting is some in, in in his army in what was called the Newburgh Conspiracy early that year in 1783, had called for Washington to take control as a dictator. Now, they were grumbling a bit. They felt like they weren't, you know, low pay, poor conditions. And they said, gee, you know, republics don't always work that well. We need a strong leader. And besides, it's George Washington, right? If you're going to have a dictator, why not George Washington? Well, he just basically, you know, lay into his uh, leadership and his uh, team says, that's not why we fought this war. I am not going to be a dictator. We fought for freedom from Britain to set up a self-governing democracy or republic. I am not going to do that. It's sort of pretty amazing. Um, So when you look at the greatness of George Washington, it really was in so many ways, it was his his character. That was really where his greatness, uh, where his greatness came from. He was often up against generals on the British side with, uh, with superior military experience. 
superior, you know, if you were to rate their military expertise and probability of success, you would typically give it to the British generals. Washington didn't have nearly the same level of experience. And I'm sure he'd be the first to admit to say, look, I'm not a military tactical genius, but, you know, what he, he knew um, the bigger picture was uh, we're just going to fight on, we're going to avoid major um, battles with the British in which, you know, we could lose, we're going to wear them down. He, he had the overall game plan, but in terms of that, you know, battlefield tactical to command, that wasn't where his genius lay. And, you know, Washington was the one leader that the American people could rally behind because they knew he wasn't on some ego trip. You know, his values were honesty, humility, integrity, and the nation was to, um, you know, really to grow to uh, to love and respect him. Yeah. And I'm going to read a quote, and it's, it's interesting, um, Washington, when you go back to the founding fathers here in the U.S., not all of them, not, perhaps not a lot of them, were, were men of few words, right? I mean, like if you ask Benjamin Franklin to talk about character, Benjamin Franklin might go on for a bit. Thomas Jefferson <laughs> might go on for a bit. Patrick Henry would certainly go on for a bit. But Washington, I found this quote that he said about character. He just said this, good moral character is the first essential in a man. Period, exclamation point, that's it. Um, which is is fascinating to me. Also, Warwick, fascinating to me is what you just described uh, as you were talking about how the Americans wanted to make him dictator, right? I mean, they wanted, you know, they wanted him to stay in charge um, and he wanted to leave, you know, exit stage left. And when we think about, I mean, all the things that you talked about, about his character there, particularly that, leaving an office that they wanted to just have him have forever, that's not what goes on with leadership today. And you can, I mean, let's, we don't have to talk about parties. We don't have to talk about people. We don't have to talk about any of that stuff. I mean, there's a reason why in uh, Congress, there are term limits laws, right? Because people don't like to get out of there. Those who are elected, the power, right? Once, once you have it, it's hard to let go of. Washington is a great example of someone who had it. It, it could have been unchecked, and he just said, "No, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm done. My, my, my time here is done. My job is done. I'm gonna move." I mean, that's extraordinarily rare, isn't it? Not just from our perspective today, but I think down through history, that's pretty extraordinarily rare, isn't it? It really is. Um, it's so rare to have a leader that it's not about me. It's all about the cause. Um, it's just. It's incredible. I mean, obviously, as people uh, know, later on in 1789, he did become uh, president because there was basically acclamation from people saying, who else other than George Washington? And back then, uh, you were elected by an electoral college. Well, he was elected president unanimously. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, there's not been one president since that received 100% of the vote. Right. Well, he did. And again, it was the electors and different American colonies and all that. But still, uh, you would have thought you'd have one person saying, uh, how about me? And uh, Washington's okay, but, uh, you know, I think I want some other person. Right. So that just goes to show you that doesn't happen. And the right. only way it happens is when people realize this guy's not about him. He's all about the nation. He's all about serving us, serving the people. 
I mean, that, you know, 100% election victory. Right. It's it's unthinkable. I mean, obviously it will, I think I'm confident of saying it will never happen again here yeah. or anywhere. Yeah, yeah it's just, for sure. It, it, you know, we live in a divided nation. Most countries are divided politically. It, it is a staggering to think. It's really, uh, it's a testimony to his character that, you know, the way he became president ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. And he also established, right, the precedent of leaving after two terms that was there yes. forever. And then FDR through the war years stayed. But and then we had a constitutional amendment that made it it is only two, two terms, but he didn't have to leave after two terms. But he did his work. Again, his work was done and he was out. So um, character certainly strong with him. But his character, as you point out in your book and as we're going to talk about now, is inextricably tied to his ability to listen well and to act on what he heard. Another thing, as we look around leadership today, some places, that might not be a universal uh, output for, for a lot of leaders, the ability to listen well and apply what they hear. Why is that a noteworthy, a noteworthy discussion of the leader Washington was, Warwick? And talk in particular about how he listened during the siege of Boston, because that I know that really moved you. It is. I mean, sometimes you have case studies that highlight a person's character, a particular incident in their life that it's like, you know, what summarizes his character and in particular his ability to listen, this was the siege of Boston. So, you know, the siege of Boston occurred from 1775 to 1776 just to help listeners, you know, understand the topography, if you will, back then, uh, believe it or not, Boston was almost an island. It had a narrow peninsula or neck connecting it. So that meant it was not an easy position to defeat. So you had the British forces uh, who were well-led and they were basically within the, the city of Boston and it was considered an impregnable fortress. You know, how do you attack it? Do you kind of go down this narrow neck? I mean, that, you know, everybody knows where you're going to be coming from. They're going to train fire there. Do you try and get it by sea? I mean, you had the whole British fleet in the harbor. This was a very, very difficult position. And so, you know, um, months go by, winter comes, the American forces were suffering sickness and, you know, morale had waned a bit. Washington was to come there in 1775. And he was to convene four councils of war over a number of months from 1775 to 1776. And basically, you know, to, you know, let's go in there and take, uh, you know, and take the city of Boston. So these councils of war, just to give folks a, uh, some, a timeline, it was September 11, 1775, October 18, uh, later that year, January 16, and then February 16 in 1776. Each time, Washington urged a direct assault on the city of Boston. We've got to take him down. Let's go, right. folks. Let's get him. Washington was naturally impatient. Each time, his military commanders said no. Over months. Now, obviously, Washington was the commander of the American forces. He could have overruled them, but he didn't. And it's interesting to note why, because he was, you know, his writings, it was, he was clearly very frustrated. He wasn't like, okay, no big deal. You know, that's yeah, fine. Let's next. just move on. <laughs> he was like, are you serious? 
we've got to take this, you know, the country's depending on us. We've got to take Boston. My gosh, you know. Uh, you know, it's where the um, Tea Party occurred, you know, Boston Tea Party and all that. We've got to take Boston. And it's like, so I'm just sorry, but no. Well, part of the reason was Washington's team was composed of senior and seasoned military leaders, leaders like Major General Charles Lee and Brigadier General Horatio Gates. They were former British military officers. And so Washington knew these people know more about military strategy than I do. They just were very, they were more experienced officers than he was. He knew that. So you overrule people that know more about something than you do at your peril. Now, everybody could be wrong, but if his whole team is saying, I'm sorry, sir, you know, this is madness. We can't do it. You know, why would you overrule uh, folks like that? So finally, his patience um, actually bore fruit. So at this last council of war in February 16, 1776, again, they said, no, I'm sorry, sir, we are not going with the direct assault. But there was a but. The but was recently Colonel Henry Knox had captured some mortars and cannon from the British at Fort Ticonderoga in Lake Champlain. And he brought them to the Boston area. That was actually a game changer, all these cannon and mortars. And so they came up with this brilliant plan, uh, Washington's commanders, his team. On the evening of March 4, they brought these mortars and cannon to the top of the Dorchester Heights overlooking Boston. So by morning, you had 3,000 men and cannon in position in the high ground overlooking Boston. The British cannon, they couldn't elevate that high. I mean, they're in a position where, you know, they were in a very dangerous position. The British had, you know, like over a hundred ships. And the British commanders said to, um, you know, General Howe, who was the commander of the forces there, I'm sorry, sir, but we're in an untenable position. We've got this cannon that could destroy our fleet and rain down on the city of Boston. I mean, we've got to withdraw. And I have to say that the British officers, they were just amazed. How in the world could the Americans get all these forces and cannon up there without us even knowing about it overnight? It's like, we couldn't do that. So that was there was some tactical genius in how that operation went about. Uh, the so-called, you know, kind of unruly American forces who the British didn't have a whole lot of respect for, they did something the British themselves thought they couldn't do. So there's right. a little, you know, microcosm of the story right there. But all that's to say is um, almost without firing a shot at that moment, the British had to withdraw. They couldn't risk losing, you know, a whole fleet. So they withdrew with 120 ships and more than 11,000 British troops. An incredible defeat. How soldiers said, I just feel bad for him because it's just complete humiliation. And he was, the British commander was no idiot. He was a proven leader. He had success, but he was basically beaten in a sense by patience and by uh, Washington's team waiting until they had an edge. The edge was the cannon, coupled with the strategy of getting the cannon to the high ground. That was the edge. Uh, if Washington had not waited, history might have been very different. It might have been a, a massive defeat for the American colonies. What would the Continental Congress have said about Washington's leadership early in the war? Gee, have we picked the right guy? You know, look what happened. It's a humiliation. But because Washington listened, he didn't go through that humiliation. It was obviously a very different story to write. Yeah. And it's that 
that greatness, right? I mean, a, as this episode is is dropping, uh, we've just celebrated President's Day. He's one of the individuals, one of the presidents, he and Abraham Lincoln, the President's Day is named after. So uh, that has echoed through history in the United States, what we've been talking about here, um, his the greatness of his character and his patience uh, as reflected in how he listened to those he didn't have to listen to. Again, apply that to what we see modern times with leadership sometimes they don't listen uh, sometimes they don't listen very well uh, turn on c-span and, and watch congress debate right there's a lot of talk and that may that may be a lot of listening going on so uh, washington said this by the way about listening again pithy 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 gentlemen you have only one way to convince others listen to them and which is a which is a great place for for me to jump off and ask you this next question, right? We do this show, we do these shows, Warwick, not just so you can talk about history, which is great, but there's there's lessons to learn. There's There are things that, that our viewers and listeners can pick up as they go through their lives and go through their crucibles. And so I want to ask you here, what can we learn from both Washington's character and his ability to listen um, because they're tied together. What is that package? What can we learn from that package as expressed by this uh, great historical leader? You know, Washington put the mission and the cause, the independence of the American colonies above his own ego and interest. It was all about the mission. His humility and devotion to his country was more important than his agenda. He was willing to listen to people, including his generals, who had more military experience and expertise than he did. I mean, it's really very rare. And I love when you have a situation where somebody's character overcomes maybe their natural character flaws, if you will. And he right. was an impatient person. He knew that, but he had the self-control, the self-discipline to be willing to listen and overcome his natural impatience. It was his character and his humility that allowed him to listen. Because so many leaders, when they're in that position, it's all about me, I'm going to hire yes men, yes women, and if they don't agree with me, they get fired. He was willing to hire people that were better and smarter than him in certain areas, like the you know military tactical uh, uh, knowledge. And, and that's really what's What's remarkable, and he was willing to listen to them. Who wouldn't want to work for somebody like a George Washington? Right. If you have a good idea, he'll listen to you, even if it's in an area where he doesn't know much about. It's like, okay, it's, it sounds like a good idea. Uh, let's go with it. So, it was really his character that was um, the core of his of his greatness, and that's what makes uh, you know Washington so so remarkable. Yeah. And right, his character and listening, those are great takeaways for folks because it will help you bounce back from your crucible. It'll help you navigate um, uh, how you turn set back into triumph, right? How you turn your trials into triumph, how you can take what's been broken and you can have breakthrough. Those things will help you do that. But the way that this all goes, the other thing about Beyond the Crucible is this idea of a life of significance. So talk a little bit, Warwick, about how what we've been talking about, character and the ability to have 
to listen and to be patient enough to not just hear what people say, but heed what people say. How does that all help fuel a life of significance? When you're pursuing your vision, a vision that you're off the charts passionate about, character and listening matter. Obviously, we believe a vision that's worth pursuing leads to a life of significance, a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. If this vision is that kind of higher purpose vision, it's too important to fail. And so if it's all about you and your ego, your chances of failure exponentially increase. I don't know if it's guaranteed, but maybe close. But if it's not just about you and your ego and your agenda, it's like it's about helping others. It's about making some difference in the world, whether people view that as small or big. It's about having an impact for good. Then when it's that kind of purpose, something that's greater than you, character and listening matter. It's not about ego. It's not about your agenda. It's about assembling a great team. We talk about fellow travelers, right, right, both right. those who encourage, as well as those with a diverse group of skills and backgrounds that you don't have, who are better, quicker, smarter, faster than you are in certain areas. Great leaders want people who are better than they are in certain areas, and they listen to them. And they you know, collate uh, that advice and that input into a vision that people can get behind and they'll follow. But that only happens if people think, hey, it's not about you. You know, we're all in this together. We all have a part of the vision. We all have a role to play. And we're doing something that matters. We're doing something that makes a difference. That kind of character and humility and ability to listen, it exponentially increases the chances of that vision succeeding. And frankly, it exponentially increases your ability to recruit fantastic team members. Because those who are really, really good, they have choices. They don't right, have to be part right, of your right. team. Yeah. The best and the brightest, they have a lot of options. Why will they pick you rather than some other you know, venture to be part of? Yes, they believe in the vision, but they believe in you. And that's not an ego trip. They believe in your ability to put the mission of a self and the ability to listen to good people. So character and listening, it can be the X factor, the difference that exponentially increases your chance of succeeding. Do you want to succeed? You want your vision to become reality? Character and listening, it matters. It matters a lot. Great point to kind of begin the wrapping up of the, the, the discussion here. We've talked about a lot. You've talked about a lot. Um, great details from your book, Crucible Leadership. Great details from just your study of Washington, including the fact that your family hired him. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but you mentioned that, that right, <laughs> there's a there's a Fairfax family connection. Indeed. Um, uh, you know, there's there's the, even the Annapolis, Maryland connection there. So I can see why you feel close to him. Beside the fact that these principles that we've talked about are principles that I've seen you, watched you, uh, benefited from you living by. So as we're wrapping this up, as we're putting the, the the bow on the package, pulling together all the balloon strings, let me ask you this. What are the big takeaways that you want to leave for listeners and viewers today about how Washington's life and the lessons therein can help them make their vision, their unique vision, their vision that's all theirs, that's that they're off the charts passionate about? How can what we learned here from Washington help them make that vision a reality? 
You know, to make a vision a reality, who you are within is critical. It can mean the difference between a truly great vision becoming a reality and one that crashes and burns and goes down in flame. You know, a great vision is about others. It's about fulfilling some higher purpose uh, rather than about you and some ego trip. It's about a cause bigger than you, not about the big house, the big boat, the big position, the accolades in the media. That's not what it's about. You know, to create a great vision, it requires the inner work, the soul work. We often say the inner game precedes the outer game. It's that soul work, you know, realizing it's not about me. We're all imperfect. We all have flaws. We all have things we can grow in. It's about that humble self-awareness. And, you know, that inner work is really, that soul work is critical. And Washington knew that the American Revolution was not about him. He knew it was about the independence of America from Britain. It was about uh, America being you know, in a position where it could chart its own course and discover its own destiny. And he would not let his character flaws, which we all have, he would not let his natural impatience get in the way of that goal. Um, you know, he would listen to his generals who had more experience and expertise than he did. You know, he wouldn't let ego get in the way. You know, it's funny, we haven't covered this, but uh, Washington actually lost more battles than he mm. won. So it's like if you were doing the stats, <laughs> right? does that add up to being a great general? Yeah. I mean, can you imagine being a coach or a quarterback of a team? It's like, yep, my losses outweigh my wins. Yeah. He's not Probably the not GOAT. Get, He's not no, the it's goat. not going <laughs> to get you in the Hall of Fame. Right. You know? Uh, but yet Washington is in the Hall of Fame. Well, how can that be? He's a general. He lost more battles than he won. Obviously, ultimately, he won the ultimate battle, which was the war. But that was through you know patience and um, just a character that kept people going. I guess the final thing I'll say is it's easy for us to say, well, you know, I don't. My mission isn't to you know create an independent United States or to do some great cause. And how can I relate to a Washington? It's not so much the size of the mission. It's the character in this person mm. that led him to do what he did. So whether, you know, it's a nonprofit, a local business, whatever it is, it's not about the size of the, of the mission as some people would see it. It's about, is it important to you? Is it going to make a difference in your community? Will it help people? And what's the character that's needed to accomplish that? So even if, you know, pretty much none of us have a, you know, Washington-sized mission, if you will, as the world would see it, we can still learn a lot from his character and how he handled what was a very challenging position. Mm. You know, Warwick, I've been in the communications business long enough to know when our boat has crossed the Delaware. <laughs> <laughs> and we have indeed gotten to, um, to uh, the end of our trip. And so, folks, we're going to wrap up this fifth series within the show on stories from the book Crucible Leadership. We'll turn the page next month on another story to help you turn the page and move beyond your crucible to a life of significance. We'll see you then. If you enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start 
our free online assessment, which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.